It's always a privilege to share the word of the Lord with you. Um, It's going to be a bit of an abbreviated message today because we have already had a very, very full morning. And so I um, trust that God's going to help me sort out the things that I need to share. But the title of my message is The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. And I am going to, again, move this, these pieces of equipment out of, out from in front of the cross, because I want our focus to be on the cross this morning. We were actually going to move on um, and pick up one of the other topics that we're doing in this Freedom and Wholeness series, but the Lord really impressed on both Gary and I that we still needed to talk about one more aspect of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be talking about the covenant. And the reason we felt like we needed to talk about that today is that most people don't have a good point of reference for what the covenant is. And and I'm just going to try my best in the short time that we have together to unpack it and give you the main, most important points. And really, we're going to be scratching the surface. I've studied on this topic many times over the years. I prayed about it all during the week, and I studied some more on it during the week. I studied on it last night. I got up at 6 this morning and studied until 8 o'clock. No, it was about 8.30, I think, and Gary's saying, we need to get ready for church. I said, I know, I know. I just, I just can't, I, I just am hungry to know more about this, and so that's why we got here a little bit later than usual. And so here I am. My heart is full. Um, This is an important topic. This is a powerful topic. You need to understand this topic. So I am going to challenge you as the recipients of this message to allow yourself to grab a hold of it in a fresh way. Some of you are sitting here and thinking, I know about that. I've heard teachings on that before. I'm familiar with it. But you know what? Every single time we study on this topic, there's more to glean. And we in our country and in our culture have very little reference to really understand the full scope of the covenant. And so we're going to look back and try to understand the history of it and get a better grasp on what Jesus really fully did for us on the cross because there was an incredible great exchange that happened on the cross and if you don't understand the old testament concept of covenant you will never grasp fully what he did for you and so we're going to take a look at that and i'm going to just briefly lay a bit of a foundation and then we're going to try to begin to unpack that first so the great exchange the name of the of the message today first of all god always described or chose to make his relationship with his people through covenant, through covenant. And in our culture, covenant is really falling by the wayside. Even marriage is being assaulted, the marriage covenant, which is about the closest you're going to be able to grasp to understand the covenant that God has with us. But we know without going any further into that, that that covenant is under great assault in our culture and in our nation and really in the world. But the word covenant first occurs in Genesis 6 when God made a covenant with Noah. And I'm not going to go there because we don't have time. But you will find if you read through the Old and New Testament and start looking for it that you'll see the word covenant all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's an important word. It's God's way of relating to his people. It's how he designed to have a relationship with his people. And so we need to understand it. And in the New Testament... It is really the New Covenant. The New Testament part of our Bible is the New Covenant. The Old Testament part of our Bible is the Old Covenant. And so if we don't understand what covenant means, we really won't understand all that Jesus Christ provided for us through the New Covenant. 
when God made a covenant with his people, he always used the name Yahweh, or Lord. It can be translated Lord. And that was his personal name that he used when he made a covenant with his people. And with that word Yahweh, or Lord, it carried the connotation of the revelation that he was a Lord, or God, the God, the Lord, who is kind, that he was concerned for mankind, that he wanted to be near to mankind, he wanted to be faithful to the ones that he made a covenant with, that he wanted to release his redemptive power and love into their life. So they, the, the early, um, like the Israelite people, when God made a covenant with them, he began to give them this revelation, I am a loving God, I am a kind, I, the, I, I don't want to say a, I am the, the kind God, I am loving, I am faithful, I want to be near you. I want to have a relationship with you. So the word Yahweh and Lord encompass those aspects and those, those qualities, but most of us, again, really don't understand the fullness of that. So when God would establish a covenant, and I'm, I'm going to have to jump a little fast here for the sake of time so that we can actually uh, get, the, get a grasp on what I'm sharing. When he established a covenant, um, there were three main purposes for his covenant. One was it taught the gravity of sin and how sin separated mankind from the holy God. Because a lot of times we don't realize how sin separates us from God. We don't even, a lot of times, think sin is all that important. I, before I came to the Lord Jesus, remember hearing the, the gospel message or having people talk about sin, and I would think my mind would tell me, oh, you, you haven't really done anything that bad. You haven't murdered anybody. You know, that was my mindset, and I think many of us have that mindset about sin. What's the big deal about sin? Well, sin is, is a, a grave condition that mankind is in, and it separates us from God. And so sin is a serious thing. And it also, the covenant also taught that there was a way provided for God for people to come to him, to come and approach him, to be brought into relationship with him. And it was through faith. It was through faith and obedience to God and love towards God. And then the covenant also pointed towards Christ's perfect sacrifice that was come to come. So it was pointing forward toward the one that was going to come. And I know last week Gary taught on that. I wasn't in here, but we talked about the message. And as he said, if you didn't listen to last week's message, it's a really an important foundational message. You know, I just want to say that we take very seriously our Sunday morning opportunities with you. We only get one day a week where all of you are here together and we get a brief time to share with you and impart to you as much as we can. And we take very seriously our call to equip you and to disciple you and to teach you and to train you because we're, we're accountable before God for that. We don't just come to you with just fluffy messages and just things that we think, oh, you know, it'd be really good to share on that this week. We, we pray and we really seek the Lord. And so this, this series that we're doing on the power of the cross, we're feeling God's, like the weight of God's hand on us with this. And so even though some of you may be thinking, another message on the cross? Grab it. Let it be engrafted into your heart. This is like the foundational truth. If we don't know this, if we don't get this, you're not going to get anything else. You're not going to understand so much about what God has done for you. But the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was 
a temporary one. It was one that God put in place to point toward the one that was yet to come. And Jeremiah the prophet prophesied that in the future there was going to come a time when a new covenant was going to be made. And I'm going to read that prophecy to you and then we're going to jump in to understand how the covenant was made and some of the qualities of the covenant. So Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will be not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them. So God looked at it as if he was so committed to his people. He was like a husband to them, but they were unfaithful, and they broke the covenant. Covenant. And then the Lord goes on to say, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. So it's pointing to the one that we are in right now. Declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So that was the new covenant that God was prophesying was going to come through Jesus Christ. And we're in that season now, and we are so blessed to live in this season now. We are so incredibly blessed. Don't take for granted the season that you live in, this time of grace, this time now that we're in, where we're in between between the time when Jesus provided the new covenant and the time that he's going to return. We are so, so blessed. And so that new covenant was going to be uh, so much better than what was ever there before. Now I want to talk about why it's important to understand the blood covenant. Now the, the term covenant literally would it be, if we were to state it properly, it would be called cutting the covenant. Cutting the covenant. And that word comes from the Hebrew and Greek words that mean to form a promise, an agreement, a binding promise by cutting to make the blood flow. So a covenant is a binding promise. It's an agreement. It's an important agreement. And they would cut a covenant where they would make blood flow. And it was the most binding covenant any two people or two groups of people could ever enter into. And once they committed to it, the only way out of it was by death of one or both parties. And it was never entered into lightly. Now there's a, some traditional steps in the making of a blood covenant that I'm going to go over. Again, I'm just briefly skimming the surface for the sake of time. But when a covenant was made between two parties, let's say there was someone up here and I wanted to make a covenant with them and, an, and we would come into a solemn agreement and we both were agreeing that we were going to make this, we would exchange coats. Because at that time, a man's coat signified his identity and his authority. And so they would exchange coats, and it would signify that my identity and my authority is, is being given to you, and yours is being given to me. And it basically was saying, everything that I am and everything that I represent now belongs to you. And everything, my possessions and all that I am, I give to you. I'm no longer my own. I belong to you. And so they would exchange their coats, symbolizing that each one was covenanting with the other, that whatever they had, their identity, their possessions, their power, all was belonging to, became a part of what the other person now owned. Now, you, as you start to see this, you're going to understand more fully what Jesus did for us on the cross when he cut a covenant for us with his blood. 
They would also exchange their weapon belts. In those days, their weapon belts, remember in Ephesians when Paul talks about girding up our loins and different things, they had weapon belts that they were girded with, and on those weapon belts they would carry their knife, their sword, their bow, or any other weapons of warfare that were their personal protection. It also symbolized their power of their tribe or their group or their nation that they were a part of. So it was very symbolic when they exchanged weapon belts, and it signified that all my strength, all my authority, all my power, all my ability to defend you and to defend myself now comes to you, and yours comes to me. Your enemies are now my enemies. My enemies are now your enemies. Your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. And I will serve you if you ever need me, and you will serve me and help me if I am ever in a situation where I need you. I will call upon you, and you are bound to help me. So do you see here what's happening? Uh, When Jesus hung on the cross, he gave us his identity, and he gave us his protection and his power through the blood of Christ. Secondly, they would exchange vows Um, Gary talked a bit about this last week, and I don't have a lot of time to go into it right now, but actually, in the cutting of a covenant, an animal would literally be sacrificed by splitting it down the backbone. These are things, again, we don't fully understand, but this was common, common biblical covenant, and covenant not only in biblical, like in the nation of Israel, but in the cultures around the nations of Israel. And the halves of the animal would be laid separated and laid, and the people that were cutting the covenant would walk in a figure eight between those animal pieces, and they would meet once again. So they would be walking, one would be walking this way, the other one would be walking that way. They would meet in the middle, and they would have totally exchanged their places, and they would meet once again. And that figure eight represented infinity or the never-ending relationship. And when they met in the middle, they would pronounce the blessings that would come upon one another through that covenant, and they would also pronounce what would happen if the other one broke the covenant. And typically the the consequence would be death. It was a very, very serious thing to make a covenant. And then they would begin to list all the things that they possessed. They would say, okay, I have a flock of um, 700 sheep, and this is yours, and I have 800 servants, and they are yours, and I have this much land, and this is yours. And so they would say, these are all my belongings, and I'm exchanging all, my, all that belongs to me. All that I have, everything that is a part of me is being given to you. And that would be a part of the exchanging of their goods. And then they would exchange names. They would literally exchange names. They would take on them the name of the other person, and that person's name represented his individuality. But now, as they exchange names, they, they died to being that individual apart from the new covenant relationship. And that covenant new union, they were no longer concerned only with themselves, but now they were concerned to also be taking care of the person they were in a blood covenant with. They were concerned to know that that was their covenant brother and that they would care for that one just as they would care for themselves. That's how serious the commitment was. And then one of the next things that they would do would they would literally cut their wrist or their hand, their palm or their wrist, till the blood flowed freely. And the Bible teaches us that the life is in the blood. And the two tar- participants, participants excuse me, would now either shake hands 
or put their bleeding wrists together. And Jim, I'm just going to have you shake my hand. And that's where the shaking of hands when you make a deal with somebody. You know, we have a custom of shaking. Well, let's shake on it. Well, that literally came from the making of a covenant. And as they would shake hands, their blood would mingle together, symbolizing the coming together of the two lives as one. And that they were no longer individuals, but they were one, and that they were a part of each other, and that they belonged to each other. Can you see the power of the blood covenant of Christ, that what he did for us? And again, this is hard for us to really relate to or understand, because we are so far in our culture from anything like this. But actually, in uh, Africa and nations, some South American nations, they still cut covenants between tribes. This is still happening in different parts of the world. Uh, they would exchange a covenant meal then, and it usually consisted of bread and wine. And they would break the loaf of bread, and they would each take a piece of the bread and put it in the other one's mouth, signifying that I am placing part of myself in you, demonstrating that part of each of us has gone into the other, and they would drink the wine from a common cup, indicating that our blood has gone into each other. And since the life is in the blood, they were demonstrating that they've taken each other's life into one another, isn't that amazing? I mean, again, this is really foreign to us. This is hard for us to wrap our head around as cultured Greek logic people who live in the United States of America. This is hard for us to understand. But all these things were very, very clear to the people of Bible times. The New Testament, the, um, the disciples that followed Jesus, they understood about covenant. They understood a lot of these things that we don't get. We read through it and we think, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's bizarre. I don't understand that. But this was all very important concepts. So we, when we take communion, can you begin to understand more fully what the significance is when we take communion? And at the end of the blood covenant ceremony, the two covenant heads, or the primary people that were forming the covenant, were now called friends. They were called friends. And it's not just the loose, hey, yeah, I hang out with that person once in a while. Yeah, they're my friend. It wasn't that. When they were called friends, it meant that they had an attitude now toward one another, which was literally called loving kindness. And it's from the Greek word agape and from a Hebrew word that expresses a relationship, which I am not um, able to pronounce, so I'm not going to try. But the word friend meant loving kindness, a love relationship that says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Didn't Jesus say those words to us? I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. It was, I will always do the best for you, even if it's to my own detriment. We're now in union with one another, and we are friends with Jesus. And I just want to take you to John 15, where Jesus literally said that. And again, it's one of those passages of Scripture where if we just read it over and we don't understand the fullness of it, we wouldn't catch this. But Jesus said in John 15... I'm going to start in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. And if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you, no long, if you do what I command. And then it goes on to say, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. 
For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And that whole, that whole chapter is full of, of the a revelation of this. So Jesus is saying, I'm calling you friends because we're entering into a covenant. I'm going to shed my blood for you, and we are going to be friends. And they knew it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, Jesus is my buddy. He's my friend. I hang out with him. I, I got invited to the Last Supper with Jesus. I'm friends with him. No, it was that Jesus was committed to them, and he was laying down his life and cutting a covenant on the cross, which they didn't fully understand the covenant quite that he was going to shed on the cross quite at that point. But Jesus said, he calls us friends. Doesn't that open your eyes more fully to what he did for us on the cross? So I'm going to jump. I was going to share a little bit about Jesus being our representative and our substitute, but I am going to skip over that for right now because I want to get to the more important part. Well, it's, I can't say more important part, but to the part that I feel like I need to leave you with. Remember when Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And remember when I talked about in the covenant there was an exchange between the two parties. They would always exchange different things. That was part of the covenant. And Jesus literally made exchanges for us that give us abundant life. And now I want to talk to you about those exchanges. This is why we can have abundant life. The great exchange number one, Jesus gets our sin and we get his righteousness. We, he took our sin. That was what he received. Remember it says in scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus got our sin on the cross and we got his righteousness. That was the exchange. He said, I'll take your sin and I will give you my righteousness, and make you in right standing with God. Exchange number one. Exchange number two was that Jesus got our sin nature. Again, it says that he was made sin, and then it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer that I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So he gets our sin nature, and we get his divine nature. We get his divine nature. In 2 Peter 1.4, Peter writes and says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. So Jesus took our sin nature, and we get his divine nature. We become partakers of God's divine nature by the power of his Holy Spirit who comes into us and transforms us and fills us with the Holy Spirit. We get his divine nature. This is amazing. Exchange number three, Jesus received our name. He became the Son of Man, the Son of Man. But what did we get? Remember he said that we could ask anything in his name? And he said, I give you authority in my name. I send you forth in my name. So we have been given power of attorney in the name of Christ. We can use his name. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's John 14, 13. And then Peter, the apostle, in Acts 3 said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He used the name of Jesus, the authority that Jesus has given, had given him, and he saw the miracle happen where the lame man rose up and walked and began to leap and praise God. 
So we get the name of Jesus. He became the Son of Man, and we became carriers of his name, and we have been given and delegated authority in his name. Exchange number two, Gary talked about this before, he, before communion. Jesus took our sickness and our disease on himself. Talks about that in Isaiah 53, many other places as well in scripture, but I'm going to read out of 1 Peter 2.24 where it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. He took our sickness and disease, and he gives us healing. He gives us the opportunity to be healed through what he did on the cross. Why do we not see more things happening in the church today in the realm of healing? We need to press in. We need to start believing God for that because there's very little teaching that's commonly um, released in the church to, to believe for healing. And we have so much doubt and unbelief in the body of Christ today. And so we're battling that. And we're, you know, that's why we talk about this a lot. That's why we teach on it. And we want our church, we want you to understand that we must press in and we need to fight those, the doubt and the unbelief that's in the church today and say, you know what, God's word says this. And so we're going to pursue and press in for healing and deliverance for people because Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And I really, truly, truly believe that the end-time revival that's coming is not only going to be a revival of holiness before Jesus comes back, but God wants his bride to go out triumphant, not a defeated bride, not a bride that doesn't know who she is, not a bride that doesn't know who he is, but a bride that knows who he is and is out doing the work of the kingdom. And I believe we're going to see signs and wonders and things happening because Jesus said, greater works than I have done will you do also because I go to the Father. Did he just say that to use up ink on the page? No, he said that because he was prophesying that and declaring that, that greater works than Jesus did, his church was going to be doing because he was going to the Father. And I do not believe for one moment that the church is going to go out defeated when Jesus comes back, but that the church is going to be doing the work of, his, of, of the kingdom of God and that, the, as Joel prophesied and said, that um, the harvest... Oh, what's the scripture I'm looking for? Sorry. Joel prophesied and he said the um, latter will be greater than the former. The latter will be greater than the former. And so, brothers and sisters, be expectant because God wants to use you. He wants to release the authority of his kingdom through his people. And part of that is through healing and deliverance. There's people everywhere we look who are desperate for help. And God wants to use the church, the bride, to help people. And so exchange number five was that excuse me, exchange number four was that Jesus got our sickness and disease. He took it upon himself. He's not sick now, but he took it upon himself at the cross. He bore it so that we could be healed. And then exchange number five, Jesus took our poverty. It says in scripture, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty we might experience his riches. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Third John 1, 2 says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Philippians 4, 19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus became poor and took poverty upon himself so that we, the people of God, could have provided for us the things that we need. God's not against us having what we need. He's not against us having abundance. He wants us to have what we need and more than enough so that we can bless others. 
But it's, the important thing is that we have said over and over is, it's not wrong to have possessions, but don't let your possessions have you. Okay? It's what you do with it. It's your heart attitude. I am not talking about name it and claim it. That's a uh, teaching that went out of context. But we, God does want us to be provided for. Um, the word of God says that, David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaking nor a seed begging bread the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. And so when we are in a place of lack and where we need things, we can turn to God and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to supply my need, just like a testimony for the vehicle that, that, that um, Harley and Ryan shared about this morning. You know, they were in need, and they began to petition the Father for their need to be met, and God provided. He made a way, and he opened up the door for them. So God wants us to know that he is our provider. The covenant, the blood covenant, also supplies our needs. Now, if you are maxed out, uh, this is not in my notes, but it's just coming to me right now, so I need to say it. If you are maxed out with credit cards and you're spending money right and left and you're not being a wise steward of your finances and you're doing um, foolish things with your resources and you're not... Um, glorifying God in your finances, that's, a, that's another aspect of things where you need to humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, I have not been a wise steward. I have not been taking good care of the things you've been providing for me. I am not using my resources wisely. I ask you to forgive me, and I ask you to get things in or help me get things in order so that I can glorify you with my finances. So I am not blessing that kind of an attitude towards finances. I want to make that clear. But what I'm challenging you to do is to seek God for provision he can make a way. He can give you different jobs. He can open doors for blessing to come to you. He can cause favor upon your life. He can cause all manner of things to come into your hands so that you can have what you need and that you can have more than enough to further the kingdom of God because that's what God really wants for us. And if we, get into the, if we can get on the side of that where we can begin to have open hands and share with other people, and bless other people, blessings will continue to come back to you. And you will become a channel of blessing in the kingdom of God because the word of God actually says that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And I am, this was not at all in my notes, so God's wanting some of us to get this. The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And Gary and I have literally prayed different times and said, Father, begin to release the wealth of the wicked into the hands of your people so that they can further the kingdom of God. We can pray that way because that's God plan. He wants the finances and the provision out of the hands of people who are doing wicked, evil things with it. And there's people all over in our country and all over in the world that are doing wicked, evil things with wealth and prosperity. And God wants that transferred into the hands of his people. So begin to ask God to cause you to be a steward of righteousness and a good steward of his finances and provision and ask him for the wealth of the wicked to begin to come into your hands. God wants it in the hands of his people so that it can be used for his glory. Exchange number six, yes. <laughs> Jesus received the curse of the law so that we could get the blessings of Abraham. And I don't have time to get into that. I kind of actually just did a little bit. But um, Galatians 3 says that in verses 14 and 15, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus took the curse the, the, the bondage, the sin, the curse upon himself that we can be blessed. And, and I don't have time to unpack that one at this point. And then number seven, 
God was forsaken as a son. Remember, he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For that time when Christ was on the cross and when he was taken down from the cross and when he was in the tomb, when he was separated from his father until that point when he was resurrected, he was separated from God the Father. He was forsaken. And then we have been given the great exchange of becoming sons of God. We've been adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. We've been brought in as sons. Oh, man, this is, this is rich. This is so rich. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love that the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And there's many other scriptures. I'll give you two that you can write down and look at later. John 1, 12, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 where it says that we have been given the right to become children of God when we believe on his name. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We've been brought into the family. How awesome is that? Exchange number eight, Jesus experienced rejection from the Father's presence. We've talked about that already. But we receive fellowship with the Father, and we will not be rejected when we come to the Father. And in um, 1 John 1, 3 through 4, it says that we can have fellowship with the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that in Hebrews, it says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive help at our time of need. And so w- Jesus was rejected. He was, um, you know, experienced that t- actually literally rejection from the Father so that we can receive acceptance and fellowship with the Father. So these are just amazing exchanges, the great exchange that happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, and I'm going to ask Lori if she would come and just play on the keyboard for a few moments, because as we close this message, which has been a sweeping, sweeping fast, just scratching the surface, skimming the surface of the covenant, I want to ask the Lord to really make this alive in our hearts more fully. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. The word of God says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. So God at the cross gives each one of us grace. He gives us mercy. He takes everything that's wrong with us and he puts it on his son, Jesus Christ. He takes every debt that you will ever owe God, every single debt that you have ever owed God, everything that you have ever made a mistake over, all your stupid decisions, my stupid decisions, we've all made some stupid decisions, all those things that we've done that we regret, they were all put on Jesus on the cross. Everything. Even the things you haven't done yet, but you're going to do someday that are going to be sinful or wrong, the failures, they're all on Jesus on the cross, every debt. And in exchange for that, because of the blood of Jesus and the covenant, the promise that God has made for us through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. We can be made right. His mercies are new every morning. His compassions are new every morning for each and every one of us. The provision for us to have what we need to be protected from our enemies, to be provided for, to be cared for, to be able to call upon his name whenever we need him. Do not hesitate. 
to call on the name of the Lord when you need him. He's there because he chose to come into covenant with you through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. God chose this way, this plan. He did it because he loves you. He did it because he wants to provide for you. He did it because he wants to be your protector. He did it because he wants to be all that you need. Do not hesitate to call upon the name of the Lord. Do not let the enemy separate you from your God. Do not let him make you think that you do not have a right to call upon the name of the Lord. You have a right because Jesus paid with his blood and he hung on the cross and he was separated from God and he gave you the right to call upon the name of God Almighty, great God Almighty, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. You can call upon his name and you have been brought into his family and into his household and you now belong as an adopted child of God. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ and everything that belongs to Jesus has become available to you through the blood blood of the Lamb. Do not ever hesitate to call upon the name of the Lord. Do not ever hesitate to look to him for strength and wisdom. Do not ever hesitate to turn to him when you need help because he loves you with a love beyond anything you can comprehend. That, my brothers and sisters, is just a small glimpse into what the blood covenant means to you as an individual, not just to everybody in this room, but to you. You are in covenant with him, and every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you are reminding yourself of everything that he's done for you, and you are saying, oh, my God, my God, I'm in covenant with you, and it is too much to comprehend your great love for me. But brothers and sisters, that is the story of God's love for you, and it is a true story. It is a true story, and it's written out in the blood of the Lamb of God. And that is your story. And I want you to grab a hold of it and let it be engrafted into your heart. Father, take it deep into each and every person's heart here today. And I pray that it would break the power of shame. I pray that it would break the power of guilt. I pray that it would break the power of condemnation. I pray that it would break the power of every lie of the enemy in the name of Jesus. I pray that it would shake them to the foundations and the core of their life, Father God, and cement them solidly on the rock of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Father, for your incredible plan and for the great experience Exchange, the great exchange that you made available to each one of us at the cross. And may we never forget what you did for us, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And Father, I bless your people to go forth this week and to be filled with your light and your love and to shine brightly to everybody they come in contact with. Amen. God bless you.